Welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country. Or maybe you found us on the podcast, which can be found anywhere podcasts can be found, including now with the Harbinger Media Network. Thanks so much for being here. My name is Stephen Hostetter, and we are here with a special year-end show with friend of the show, Dr. Alex Tavasoli. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, Stefan. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we did this last year and we had a lot of fun. So we're bringing it back, which is this will be a somewhat wide ranging conversation based on things that you personally in your work have found interesting and that we both find curious and worth discussing. And the overarching frame of this conversation is basically about how you and I see what a sustainable world needs to look like and how it feels like the government and, say, more technocrats feel like the world uh, should look like. I believe you earlier in conversations we had discussed the possibility of just asking this, like, will actually tech save us? Which, uh, for those who are on the Harbinger show, know that there's an entire podcast called Tech Won't Save Us that features Paris Marks, who we had earlier this year, who has been a pretty strong case that tech won't. However, we're going to talk about that in a, in a pretty big, wide-ranging fashion today, starting off again with this sort of thing of like, yeah, so I'm going to start with a big question for you, which is, when you imagine a sustainable world, what does it look like? How are we living in it? Yeah, that that's a pretty <laughs> wide question. I think that when we think of the sustainable society, we think of one that produces very little waste and pollutes the environment as little as possible. So that involves, you know, using as little material as possible, using material that's very recyclable or is made from waste, having our urban planning be such that we don't need to travel very much or use very resource heavy forms of transportation that, so that the design of our buildings and communities has, you know, everything we need, like a grocery store close by. How do how does our grocery system look? Maybe we have more zero waste type stores. In the, the, this is for urban environments. Obviously, rural communities would would be a little bit more spread out and and frankly contribute a smaller portion of the greenhouse gas emissions, anyways. But for really carbon heavy urban centers, rethinking these population dense areas and how they're planned and how material flows through them and we use material, I, I think is going to be is a central part of what I think about when I think about a sustainable society. Right. And then to sort of expand on that, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, in our earlier conversations and how I would say it, a lot of the work also is around fully implementing the things that we already have. You know, it's mm -hmm. our, like when you talk about sustainable transportation, I don't think you and I are thinking out here that we're going to come up with some sort of teleportation device, but rather that likely high-speed rail and dense, effective urban transit is probably the way we're going to get there. Yeah, exactly. There are a lot of things that we can already do that we don't necessarily need brand new innovation for. I think, like you said, really low, low carbon footprint buildings and net zero buildings, we already know how to build that. and. Yeah, helping the transit system to be more efficient and to have higher carrying capacity is a really big part of it. Remember, during the COVID pandemic, greenhouse gas emissions went down a bunch all of a sudden just because people stopped driving. 
So we saw what a big impact that had and how quickly it had an impact. And so I think, yeah, rail transit systems that are electrified or um, run on zero emission fuels like hydrogen fuel cells are really opportunistic and are readily available that we don't really need that much innovation for. It's really just infrastructure funding. To flip it on ahead, to like go get into the government side of things, because you've had the experience of sort of being within the sort of startup world. How would you say the government is trying to bring about this world right now? Yeah, the government has a couple of different approaches. So they have put a lot of emphasis on sort of innovating new technologies for net zero, focusing on new, yeah, new technologies like waiting for electric vehicles to be more widespread, to look at battery recycling, carbon capture and utilization is a really new early stage technology that the government is putting a lot of um, faith into. And in addition to that, they do fund sort of more community-based energy projects. But I think that that space of just building building new infrastructure or retrofitting is a, is a really low-hanging fruit that they could, they could focus a lot more on. Because, yeah, hoping that these new technologies are going to sort of fix all of the problems without really changing the systems through which we think about using our resources it might have limited effect. Like if we don't all need to be driving cars and we could have increased public transit, why sort of just swap out a ICE vehicle for an EV vehicle one for one when you could just sort of reduce the number of vehicles altogether, which would have a lot of materials use and pollution impacts in terms of reducing the amount that we use. Yeah, it it feels like, and this was something actually that Andrew Leach, who I had previously on the show, sort of talked about. It feels a little bit like the government is trying to create a world where the new world comes into existence without really changing anything. Like, it's a very odd idea that somehow through, I'll say, quote unquote, innovation and these new businesses that they're trying to get investment brought into, which is like a huge, huge percentage of money that the government puts into new businesses is trying to get them investment ready. And it, it has created an entire ecosystem of people just trying to push businesses into this sort of mono experience of, you know, the capitalistic growth to grow, to get investment, to then eventually sell yourself off to some major corporation and then, you know, quote unquote exit, like the, you know, the, which seems to be the end all be all of most of these yes. startups. And and that seems to be the idea that if you do that enough, somehow the whole Canadian economy will change and no one will be harmed or no one will lose a job or you won't have to then actually put in these harder things like, you know, the emissions cap that they've sort of placed on the on the on the on the sands. Although I will say that my understanding is that the emissions cap was, despite it being vilified by Daniel Smith was high enough that it literally was what the Pathways Alliance said it would already do. But but this does feel like the vibe, right? The idea is like the government is going to create a sort of magic dust in the air that incentivizes all these new businesses to come into fruition when and then those businesses will change our economy into a low carbon economy, but nothing will happen. You know, like we won't build uh, high-speed rail. We won't actually take on some of these more 
nuts and bolts infrastructure pieces that we really have to. Yeah, the, 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 one of the issues with innovation policy is that, especially as it relates to the sustainability transition, is that oh, economy-wide transition simultaneously to low-carbon operations and full economy net zero, a lot of people simultaneously um, say that it needs to be very coordinated so that resources are used more sustainably. And so the system itself will be more materially efficient. But they also incentivize this to happen through the private sector, which is what you just what you described. And the problem with that is that the doing business in the private sector is an inherently not coordinated <laughs> event. It sort of becomes just regular economic competition. And so that the results of that economic competition might not necessarily be the best the or the best or most sustainable economy that we could come out with. And so that sort of contrast or contradiction, I think, is an issue, especially in areas like carbon capture. Like if you think about what incentivizes a, a private business to grow, somebody is paying you to do something, which is in this case, remove carbon. And so if you want your carbon, if you want your profits to grow and your company to grow, you want there to be more and more carbon dioxide every year, which isn't really the goal of the company. And so it doesn't really fit into the same type of private sector model. It sort of just has to be something that the government decides to do for the sake of the country. And a lot of the infrastructure that we have now was built in the Depression era, uh, post-World War II era, which in which the public works, that, that was what it was intended to do. Yeah, I mean, it does feel like our entire world is sort of bumping up against this really complicated and, or actually, I, I would say complicated, but it's actually probably relatively simple, but it's the impact is difficult, which is that like, we're trying to solve this problem through a very much capitalistic, never-ending growth problem. But obviously part of the problem, which is part of the problem itself, Right. Like the fact that you constantly need more outputs to continue to grow within a economic system that we currently live in. And even the fact that the government is trying to basically have economic growth in directly into these businesses, like invest in these businesses so they will grow is in contract or sorry, is is in contrast or is indirectly bumps up against the fact that what we actually need is a reduction of many of these things. You know, like the the solution to plastic waste is never going to be more plastics. There's a sort of no world where you can consume your way out of this problem. But it seems like our economic system and the government's influence on the economic system is only like it has one. It's it's you know it's the classic. It has one hammer. So it sees everything as a nail. But the problem is so much different. Yeah, yeah, it does. The The climate change problem does require an extra amount of coordination, I think, than our generation is maybe used to or has maybe fallen out of public memory. There is also the issue with, I, I think there's a, the government maybe feels a lot of risk associated with 
saying that they're going to wind down fossil fuels because so much of the financial system also depends on the health of the fossil fuel assets and stock prices. And so I think that they think that it's just this really crazy knot that if they put out a message that scares investors and stock prices go down, that it's just going to cause this runaway financial crisis, which is sort of, you know, tenuously tied to reality while being extremely important somehow. And so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the it, it's true that the growth, the, the, the obsession with economic growth can't go on forever because there just is a finite amount of stuff. Like I know that we've talked about space mining before and maybe that will be a way of getting a lot of growth all of a sudden, but there's just a finite amount of stuff on the earth. Yeah, that's yeah. what it is, right? There's nothing else. Yeah. Uh, like, and so, and it does feel, sort of feel like everyone's just trying to decide who will eventually deal with this. Like, it really feels yeah. like each government is like, well, we can obviously understand that eventually this will work. But you've spoken to me previously about how when you bring this up, yeah, in your spaces and sort of in this in innovation spaces, the response is that you don't believe in human ingenuity. That like sort of you pointing out this fact gets a response <laughs> to be people be like, "Well, why are you questioning? We can do whatever we want. We will figure it out." And that's can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. There's something very, I think, optimistic about having faith in like a a technological solution to climate change. And the, yeah, in my work, because I work in an engineering department where we make new technologies and assess new technologies related to the transition to net zero, that it feels like if you, that you, yeah, you're doubting human potential or something like that. If you are to say that, yeah, maybe, maybe we should just use the technologies that we have or something. It feels like quitting almost but yeah yeah but there's an interesting thought there of who's going to take care of this problem i think there are several camps in that area there are you know people who think the government should do something about it people who think that yeah technology will just solve the problem and nothing is going to change which is sort of the government thinks it does that i guess and then there's another camp of well people who think that people need to do stuff on the individual level. And it's sort of like an everything it's true at once problem. Like all of, I think the government will say, you know, consumer patterns need to change in order for material use to go down. So they sort of pass the buck and then people say, well, the government should regulate to not use plastics anymore or something like that. Like they should step in and it's sort of just all true at the same time. We need all of the stuff. Yeah. yeah. And you need someone to be a leader too, right? Like that's a part of me is a little bit like, yes, all those things are necessary, but like it's a little bit frustrating when the one body that we society has created to do the hard stuff that the rest of society doesn't necessarily want to do, you know, like we figured out that collective action is necessary to say make healthcare more affordable for everyone or to build other large infrastructure projects and on this particular issue it very much feels like the government is trying to basically say well we're going to get business to be innovative and then that will take emissions down 
and will just like get people to do stuff and that will solve the problem. But they are very clearly not taking on the large infrastructure and elbow grease problems that were also part of it. And they're just sort of acting as if, well, we'll get some of these other two problems, then maybe we'll do this middle thing. But they're sort of the uniquely positioned to lead. You know, like if if government could do the infrastructure work, maybe that would inspire these other two groups to do even more. But that's just not what it feels like right now. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. I feel like there was an era before where that was sort of understood that, you know, building basic infrastructure is not necessarily a profitable endeavor. And so the government had to had to do it. And I think that there's a lot of the pol the government policies that are in place that encourage a transition to lower carbon economy, things like the low carbon fuel standard and sort of the the heat pump rebates and things like that are geared towards efficiency solutions that um, avoid having to build major infrastructure. So for example, the low carbon fuel standard, you know, you are still burning a carbon-based fuel in a car. It's just that that fuel was made from, you know, plants or garbage or something, which is a recycled waste or a low carbon fuel because plants absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and then you turn that carbon back into fuel. And so usually on on those types of fuels, you get something like a 20% carbon dioxide reduction in comparison to using fossil fuels, which isn't, it's not a permanent solution. And so, yeah, right. they use examples of things like that to avoid having to build very large infrastructure. Yeah, for sure. And so what I want to do in the middle section of the show is I play a bit of a game and the game is going to be called Elbow Grease versus Innovation. Oh, no. And okay. We're going to collectively go through the four major aspects of waste, uh, sorry, four major aspects of uh, carbon emissions, and try to parse out as best we can what the innovation answer to these things are and what the elbow grease answer is to these things, and and try to create sort of different worlds that could get us somewhere. So if folks can stick with us, we will be going to a quick music break, and then we'll be back to play Elbow Grease versus Innovation. This is The Green Majority with Dr. Alex Tavisoli. Alex sought to make a clean getaway, but ended up fostering two dolphins. Sorry, there's two herds of dolphins. East Coast. Alex thought himself a vigilante, but ended up pantsless in Oregon, staring down the road to Cincinnati like the tunnel to the next world. Does it get any more self-centered?
said self-centered, I meant extremely impressive to have gotten all the way to Oregon. And welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country. Or maybe you found us on the podcast, you found anywhere podcasts can be found, including now with the Harbinger Media Network. If you're just joining us, my name is Stephen Hostetter, and I am here with Dr. Alex Tavasoli, and we are about to play a game that I have dubbed Elbow Grease versus Innovation where we are going to discuss the four major sources of emissions and try to come up with our best answers to how each would get solved on each side of things. So I'm going to start with buildings. And I think we'll start with elbow grease and then go to innovation. Or do you think we should go the opposite? What do you think? Go with your gut. All right. All right. We're doing, all right, we're doing elbow grease. Do you want to take the first stab at how we would solve building emissions with only tech we have today? and as much actual effort as required. Yeah, definitely. Retrofitting every building with heat pumps and all of the necessary implements, insulation, CO2 demand ventilation systems that you can capture carbon dioxide from, vertical farms on the roof that can also maybe absorb some of the carbon dioxide from the building. Yeah, we can build. Actually, that was that was airing on the innovation side a little bit. Sorry. <laughs> But yeah, just building retrofits, yeah, heat pumps, putting solar panels on the roof, things like that can definitely make a really big impact. Buildings are, I think, almost a third of our greenhouse gas emissions, and we already know how to make them very energy efficient. So we could just do that with brute force. Yeah. Yeah. We have zero emission buildings as it stands. We have retrofitted them to pretty close to that. And so my addition to that, just to sort of give people a full picture, is that the way we get there is we create a climate core of like, you know, 100,000 people that we hire to just move from one side of the country across, yeah. like send them all to the furthest east point they necessary and just have this wave to slowly cross Canada of these workers until they get to BC. And then we should have every place that can be insulated as much as possible and as much as possible and emissions reduced yeah. as quickly as possible. That's a great idea. Yeah. It might require more than 100,000 people. I'm willing to accept more. We can hire more. I'm open to that. That's but a lot of I, people. It's a lot of people. Yeah. 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 They, would, they would need, there'd be other problems with how to house them, but I think we can, we can source uh, some of these problems as well. Maybe they can not just move in a giant wave and just move, live where they live. Maybe. <laughs> we'll, we'll allow that. Okay. Complete innovation side. How how is how do we do in this? Um, on the building side, yeah. Um, on the innovation side, I think you could create sort of neighborhood-based sustainable cities, like the fifteen-minute city model. You could take fifteen-minute walkable chunks, blocks of cities, and make them and install district heating systems, um, like rainwater capture systems, so that all the buildings can sort of share and be integrated in there. Um, heat use and waste disposal and yeah just use all of the new smart cities tech that's out there to coordinate everything and also do the base retrofits on the buildings as well i'm are we allowed to do the base retrofits i feel like in this game we can't use any any actual elbow grease and so it can only be innovation 
Although I think it might only make it innovation. impossible. Like in my thinking, the only version as I can imagine is you're allowing there still to be this existence of these buildings, but you just have to add in immense amounts of carbon capture, just like on the roof or in the surrounding yeah. areas or something. There is some, you can actually use demolished or crushed building concrete aggregate. If you crush down waste concrete into aggregate, you can use that to capture carbon because the insides of the concrete hasn't actually cured. So people have studied doing that. So if you wanted to do 100% innovation, you could start with tearing down the building and then using the remnants to capture carbon dioxide and then putting it back into new concrete into a new building. There we go. And build that building to the latest tech standards. Okay, great. We're demolishing every building in existence, capturing carbon with its its things and building it back up. This is certainly a much heavy, carbon heavier pathway to take than just, yeah, yeah, doing the normal stuff. For sure. I mean, I I do think that there is, like in terms of things that don't super exist, but would be, and it would be a fair amount of work. I I do think that you could, your district heating, these district energy systems and would be the kind of innovation that would sort of let you keep existing in a way that would drastically reduce emissions. And still, obviously, the amount of build you'd have to do was required. But I actually really like district energy as a solution in some of these ways. And so I don't want to like poo-poo all types of innovation. And I yeah. and, and obviously the the I do think the walkable cities it, 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 part of it also obviously necessary. The demolishing every building to build these may be more complicated. Maybe yeah, maybe a harder yeah, time. That's super to imagine how we get there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I guess the other version of it is this, is the tech, if you really want to innovate it, would be the complete addition of trying to turn buildings into being sort of carbon sinks with like urban farms, you know, like let's throw in a couple floors of urban farms into every, into every tower that will suck in or that will suck carbon out and, and, and purify the air and do stuff like that. I think that would be the other one that is like not really in existence right now. But if you were going to make a, a carbon negative building, you would need you need plant life sort of inside of it in some way. Yeah. Yeah. I was at a I was at an event earlier this week and I wish that I remembered this person's name so that I could give them credit, but unfortunately I don't. But they were working on these capillary structures that you could build into buildings that soak rainwater from the ground up. Uh, through the building and they use it sort of passively for cooling the same way that plant capillaries suck up water and uh, yeah you could totally use that to feed a vertical farm it was very cool i'm in vancouver so it rains a lot and i think that stormwater capture is a big thing here yeah for sure that's very cool i was recently talking to someone about how trees successfully defy gravity to pull water up their their trunks and so i mean Biomimicry is definitely a part of the innovation things I find very cool. So I will accept all biomimicry in this, in our, in our make-believe innovation world. Uh, yes. <laughs> I hope there's a lot of biomimicry going on. Uh, all right. So we've now solved building emissions in both these two settings. So next on to waste. In a sheer elbow grease situation, how do you solve our problem with waste? Oh, right. Right. So waste. Well, you can reduce the amount of waste by 
putting in place more zero waste food systems. You can reduce the waste it takes to get to the grocery store by building more integrated communities that have grocery stores locally available. And then you can reuse the containers you take there. So reduce, reuse, and then recycle your waste. And if you can't recycle it by, you know, using only glass jars and implementing plastic bans, then you can burn the rest for energy recovery. Although that's not very carbon light, that emits a lot of carbon dioxide and also other chemicals from like the paints and plastics and detergents and stuff in the waste. And then if that's if energy recovery is not an option, then you have to landfill it, which is not not ideal. Yeah, I, I think in our version, we got to get rid of landfills. So like for me, yeah. I'm a little bit like this is actually I think where mostly it's more of a culture piece than it is a government piece, because like I just want to make life more annoying for basically everyone. Like I think that's literally what this comes down to. You know, like every single store is a zero waste store. So you're bringing your stuff to there and back. You know, your the disposable existence just doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. You, and you would need that to expand to, you know, clothing. So you'd have to have a pretty incredibly robust way to recycle clothing or to bring it back into sort of another version of an existence. Like, obviously, we'll slow, the fibers will slowly wear down. So I don't know how far down. On that you could get before you just would end up with like rags that you could use for stuff, and then when those wear out, you just eventually get rid of it. Maybe, but I think that you basically have to like reorient almost our entire economy to being a repair economy, right? Like you basically need the return of repairers of all kinds, and 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 you coming, you know, and you imagine like this is where the clothing swaps would have to become become a big part of it. This is where you'd have to find a way to like be repairing shoes again. And technology especially is one of the ones I think that'd be most hard to sort of imagine a world where we're constantly repairing rather than just sort of replacing. But that's really the only way to do this. Like if you're elbow greasing this, you're just changing our entire society's experience to or with consumption. And instead replacing it with access, you know, or ability to access instead of ownership and how we manage that difference. And like there's certainly other things you need to do, like the government would need to basically be like, okay, grocery stores, you can't throw out all your ugly food. You've got to find another use for that. And the tech companies would would probably have to take back all the technology and recycle it. And so like these things do exist, but... I do think that this one would be a huge, huge, huge culture shift in terms of the everyday pre- people, because out of the four, that's the biggest difference for us. Like We throw out so much stuff all the time and don't think about it. And so I think out of the four, in terms of actual in- impact on individual lives, this would be it. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And I think that a lot of societies do exist like that around the globe. Like a lot of countries in the Middle East and the Global South have already very reuse repair based societies. And not that long ago, we had one. Like my grandfather was a cobbler and that doesn't really, it's so hard to find a cobbler anymore. And so that, that, that's certainly, I think within, within our, our purview, but it needs to, it needs like a cultural shift. Like you said, like workplaces need to be more flexible so that you can be there for fewer hours in the day so that you could go get food or attend like a clothing swap or something like that and actually participate and then still also have time. (laughs) 
Yeah, for sure. And I guess yeah. the other part of this would be, if we're talking about waste, you have to talk about food waste. And so we would probably also then need to like massively change our food systems into being regenerative food systems, right? Like you would need to see an overwhelmingly significant shift. And again, this goes back to the human shift of significant reduction in meat consumption would probably be a requirement for this to happen. You know, like a lot of this waste piece, I think, would actually have a huge impacts on how people live their lives daily because our choices are so, so much opened by the ability to allow waste to occur. And if we want to cut down waste with just elbow grease, that's what you're doing. So on the other topic or on the, on the other side is innovation. And I mean, I think I, which is interesting because in some ways it's exactly where your work is in some ways headed with, with the, with the fact that you're, and correct me wrong, you, the, the lab that you're sort of beginning to start up is literally looking into the technology, technological requirements for a degrowth society. And so can you enlighten us what that might look like or yeah, that's the question actually. Yeah, so after we tear down all of the buildings and use them for carbon capture, um, um, my lab is looking at using waste and sort of alternative feedstocks for making the chemicals and materials we need to provide these types of sustainable infrastructure systems that we have. So in a world where you hypothetically do not use any fossil fuels, but still would like to, you know, have electricity and heat and plan to use, you know, batteries or solar panels and things like that to provide that. You can make a lot of the chemicals that you need from that, from waste uh, organic matter, whether it's from waste food or waste captured from wastewater treatment plants or certain types of agricultural waste. And you can turn those into the components that you need to make batteries and solar panels. So the glues, the plastic casings and things like that, that aren't really, aren't really escapable. Like when you think batteries, people think lithium and cobalt, but there are a lot of other parts that, that are in a battery that we need chemicals for that are made via fossil fuels right now. Right. And then I guess the other parts of this, if you want to think about, again, extending this into the food, I'm going to say that we just have a lot of lab grown meat. I think that's a huge, you cut off a ton of the excess waste if you only lab grow meat. People will find it weird. However, theoretically, if you just have enough energy, you should be able to do that. I'm sure there's other inputs, but I think that would probably significantly reduce the waste. How we reduce the rest of the waste in our ecological system or agricultural system, I don't know too much about this. I will say that Again, to go back to some sort of vertical farming solutions might be something that perhaps you have other ideas here. Yeah, and the food system. Uh, yeah, vertical farming is going is going to be important, I think, for a number of reasons. One, we may run out of topsoil. And <laughs> two, you do save a lot of carbon emissions from reducing food transportation. So if you can grow that food locally, you're also reducing those emissions, reducing the need for those trucks to be made, which is more carbon emission savings and material savings. And as well, less and less land will be arable for different weather reasons. So even if the, the soil is okay, unpredictable weather patterns can definitely create food insecurity issues. And so, yeah, those systems will need to be re rethought 
I don't know if we need lab-grown meat. Like, do we need it? We can just stop eating meat. Like, why put all of this extra? <laughs> That's fair. I'm trying to imagine the innovation one yeah. is that we give up as little as human comfort so we currently oh, share as possible, okay. right? Like, yeah. I'm trying to imagine, like, how we get there. Uh, I agree. Like, again, I, I, listeners will be surprised. I'm a little biased towards the non-innovation, elbow grease side of this conversation. However, if the goal is to give us a path forward, to have meat in a less wasteful society, I, I just think that's probably the way to do it. Um, all right, on to part three, which I think might be the easiest one, energy. How do we elbow grease our way into an energy that is carbon free? Yes, we just have to build a lot of a lot of renewable electricity in whatever form is most appropriate for the geography, whether it's district energy systems or microgrids or off-grid houses or yeah, the, at whatever level, single home, community or urban area, just build as much renewable electricity as possible and storage systems. Like it's pretty it's a pretty contentious question about whether it's possible to do that. I know the research community argues a lot about that, but it, 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 I, I personally believe it's possible. Like the country of Portugal runs off of fully renewable energy for a month at a time, that type of scale. So it's definitely possible. And even if you thought that the variability of renewables was risky, well, you know, nuclear energy is there for a really consistent baseline. So I feel like that is super easy to solve via elbow grease. Yeah. Like to me, it's mm -hmm. the one thing holding us back here is transmission lines. Like we just have to build a bunch of transmission lines to allow for energy to go from smaller produ producers to smaller producers and vice versa. And if you do that and then just invest a ton of money in building new renewables. And again, ultimately it will be cheaper. Like so much renewable energy right now is cheaper than all other types of power. It's just the startup capital that you need to do it. Like this is the one that we might do by accident because just investing in it will make you money. And so like that's there. But I do think that it, what's interesting is what, what's, what's currently blocking us is the refusal of these older utilities and stuff like that to just accept the fact that we need to change and to build out the infrastructure to allow for that to change. And I mean, like, if you wanted to, you could just build even more renewable energy that, that we need as capacity that would then could be then held in even more batteries. Like, there's a little bit of this that like, you know, I know that there's a large conversation about how physical batteries like pumping water yeah. up a hill and stuff like that. They're not efficient enough right now to match costs. But in this world, we're imagining elbow grease being the only, only, only factor. And so cost is not a factor. So there's no reason why you couldn't just have twice as much energy that you need that's being stored in large, inefficient physical batteries that can last months, years even, theoretically, as long as you dole them out. And so this one, I think we've, we could do right now. And it wouldn't even take that much elbow grease. But if you decided to go innovation, what are we doing? I, as you were speaking, I was thinking, I don't even know what to really say for the innovation piece, because this is sort of it. Like even the physical batteries are sort of innovative, although 
in the ancient world, people used sort of water water pumping as a energy store to like mill grain and things like that. And so it, it almost feels not innovative, but it's just, yeah, what you have to do, just use all the stuff that we just said already. Yeah, for sure. I was going to go with nuclear fusion. I figure why oh, not? Okay, really far you away. Know? Okay. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's only ever 10 years away every 10 years. I, at some point, no, I really, I, nuclear fusion is a is probably never going to happen, folks. I, I remember there was a whole breakthrough earlier this year and I had someone explain to me what actually happened. And I was like, oh, so basically nothing. And they were like, yes. But, but it was huge news <laughs> in the nuclear fusion world. So I'm going to say that that's how we do it. We somehow get cold fusion, put it in everything ever, and then stop caring about all the other ways of doing it. And somehow that's cheaper than what we have now. I don't know that part. I haven't figured that part out yet. Yeah, there is a cold fusion project out west in Canada. So maybe they're maybe they're onto something. Well, they'll figure it out. They'll save us all. So, okay, so energy was pretty easy. I think the last one also will be at least easier. But I'm open to consideration. Last one is of course transportation. If you're going to elbow grease a transportation that is carbon free, how do you do it? I would say in the major cities, just to build extremely robust public transportation systems. And then maybe for, you know, an hour to drive outside of the major cities, just really, really have a functional transportation system. And that would go a really long way. Um, that would be the vast majority of transportation emissions, I think. And then after that, you can start trying to elbow grease the other issues like rural transport and industrial equipment and marine shipping fuel and things like that. But yeah, just the urban transport problem would be so much of it. I think 70% of transportation emissions are take place in urban centers or something like that. And urban environments are responsible for 80% of emissions. So just tackling just a, the couple, the few small cities we have in Canada would go an extremely long way. Yeah. I mean, like, my my one on this is basically high-speed rail amongst big, big centers, bus services that can be electrified for the slightly more remote areas, e-bikes that deal with most of the e-bikes and regular bikes in most of the urban centers where you don't have enough transportation, although again, with streetcars and subways and electric buses, that shouldn't be a huge problem. And then you're down to the last mile problem or the last few mile problems in rural areas that we get EVs still work. You can give me a couple, you know, if EVs were just the solution for folks who lived remote-ish, then you're then you're pretty good. The you do end up still stuck on the question of flights. Like airplane travel, which, you know, is is a hard one. High if speed trains are almost as good. Yeah. I mean, you just have to get across the ocean and then high speed rail. So, you know, there's yeah, probably right. you accept some of that. But I'll say maybe maybe we just build a train underneath the ocean. I'm also OK with that option. The and then there's, as you said, shipping, which a conversation I had earlier this year w with folks who are trying to keep shipping from going to natural gas was very interesting because they were sort of like. There isn't yet exactly a great option here either. And so there are some open questions there. And then to my understanding, lastly, freights could be hydrogen. You could do green hydrogen for, for big trucks. That seems to be a pretty good option and currently exists in a, in a minor way. So 
But yeah. again, you're right. Like 80, 90% of emissions can be reduced basically by like not letting super rich people fly over fly everywhere, investing in high speed rail and and then really good transit networks and you're most of the way there. But if you're gonna go innovation and you what are you gonna do? How do you imagine the innovative zero carbon world? Transportation, yeah. I would like to see high speed trains. I am a fan of the people, high-speed trains on each, let's say, ocean-enclosed land. And then I really like the idea of the blips that fly across the ocean, like it taking like a week or two to uh, get across the ocean on a blimp. I would be into that. Yeah, right now I think that you can you can go on freight liners if you want across the ocean, which is a slightly more sustainable option than flying, but is, I think, you need a six week give or take window of your <laughs> arrival. So it's not if you need to be somewhere. Yeah. So I, I, I'm i a big fan of the blimps and trains. Yeah. And cars when you need them, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think that you're going to need a few, uh, a few cars uh, here, there. I mean, I mean, if we're talking about the innovation economy, I think basically somehow you're finding a way to let EVs still basically be everything that we see cars being now. Uh, I'm going to go with, um, let's go real tech futurist, which I do not think is a real thing and I do not support. But I think the way you'd have to imagine it would be some sort of combination of self-driving cars and electric vehicles so that you could probably reduce the number of actual cars on the road, which also should theoretically reduce the you know, need for as much storage. You know, You can imagine a world where cars become a service that you just, you know, you say, I want to come here, self-driving car arrives, sits it, drives through it, then it parks somewhere and powers up. Um, the Yeah, the blimps from Ministry of the Future seem like a perfectly accessible way to to fly. And I think there's I a mean, company that's actually working on that. Oh, ah, well, there you go. Yeah. I mean, so blimps, just generally, let's do blimps, everyone. Let's go back to the Led Zeppelin era. Or you get sustainable, or you get sustainability aviation from Richard Branson, and then you're doing that. But I, I think that ultimately those are the sort of the ways you'd have to get to that. So that's the game, everybody. You can decide personally which one you think wins, and which one, which world you'd rather live in, or which world you think we could live in, because none of these currently exist. But we will be back with the end of the show very quickly, talking about what to expect next year. So this has been The Green Majority. My name is Stephen Hostetter. I'm here with Alex Hemsoli. We'll be right back. The stolen and perverted writings of Force Limited. The stolen and perverted writings of Cicero. The stolen and perverted writings of...
your holy book was meant to be burned as soon as it was completed. Welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country. If you're just joining us, my name is Stefan Hostetter. I'm here with Dr. Alex Tavasoli. This is our special year-end show, so I just want to say, A, thank you everyone for listening this year. Thanks to everyone for supporting us in all the ways you have. I hope you have a wonderful New Year's Eve and time off. I hope you're off right now. And we'll, we'll see you in the new year, but I'd like ahead of myself. We're going to talk about the new year right now. Alex, do you have any th- thoughts about where we're headed in 2024? 2024. I think that climate adaptation is going to take a center stage over mitigation. Um, I think that we are going to see increasingly extreme effects of climate change-driven extreme weather events and different food agricultural patterns changing and things like that. And so the since most of the conversation has been focused up to this point on uh, keeping warming below a certain amount, I think we're going to see that shift into more talk about adaptation and more um, government programs related to adaptation in terms of home retrofitting for flood and fire safety and things like that. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I I have heard that that's also where the Canadian government is moving. We should expect some adaptation work in the Canadian context. And I mean, it's interesting to sort of experience, I think, our timelines. You know, we are both roughly the same age. There was a very obvious time early on in 
my environmental consciousness where talking about adaptation was sort of discouraged because it sort of implied that we weren't going to stop the worst effects of climate change. And I mean, as we have not stopped the worst effects of climate change, and as we've marched closer and closer to 1.5, there was a day earlier this year where we actually hit above two for one particular day. The need to talk about adaptation has shifted, right? Like we are now in a place where, yes, we still have to talk about mitigation, but if you're not talking about adaptation, you are 100% letting people die, right? Like that's just the facts of the matter. And we have to find a way to now do both in as many possible ways as, as we can. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It used to be seen as sort of giving up, like we would have we would have given up on reversing climate change. And even on my way home today, I saw a sign on the road that was for a, a local um, technology competition. And it said, send us your solutions for climate change. So everything is very, how are we going to solve climate change? And I think that we're starting to face the fact that we can't do that. And so we need to start adapting. And I think that's going to take center stage. And like you said, the government of Canada put out their national adaptation strategy last year. Um, so I think that's going to be a center point of the conversation. Yeah. And I, and I think the other piece of it that will be interesting to watch that I'll say is the fact that there's theories and thoughts right now that China emissions may have peaked this year and that we may mm -hmm. see that decline starting next year. And so I and if that is true and if that does happen and if they start pushing, you know, using their weight, throwing their weight around a little bit to start actually trying to get, you know, more significant decarbonization happening around them because they're well positioned to sort of manage that within their economy. You could start seeing the the, the world start sort of walking towards some tipping points in terms of that sort of fabled collapse of the oil economy that you sort of mentioned that people are both so scared of they won't even talk about. You know, because yeah. I was I, I interviewed again, mentioned earlier, Andrew Leach, and I asked him about this. I was like, look, like my understanding with how oil stocks work is that they are, you know, based on 20 year futures, that there is this idea of this carbon bubble. And he wasn't so much ready to accept the concept of a carbon bubble. But he definitely was like, if you look at what these oil companies are doing right now, when they are get when they make a lot of money, they are not currently looking at expansion. They are by doing stock buybacks. They are trying to make as much money for their shareholders right now, which is a pretty clear indication that they are, you know, in some ways trying to milk it out as much as possible before they they bail. And so I do think that, you know, if you start seeing some players like China and like some of the other major economies really start seeing a strong enough shift, you know, no one is reducing how much oil they're making right now. The United States produced more oil this year than any other country and they and than they have ever done before. And so there are clearly it feels like we'd be ending to a glut of oil. I'm not gonna say it's gonna be this year. And obviously the existence of things like OPEC will keep that down, but it feels like it's a a thing we could be tiptoeing towards, shall we say. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that that's a relatively accurate prediction. The renewables seem to be 
the choice of communities. Communities prefer renewables. and But there are still some countries coming online to the oil industry. I think like Burundi just started up their oil industry not that long ago and started exporting oil. So they're just entering entering the oil market. And uh, yeah, fossil fuel use is going up and renewables are being deployed as much as, as as more than ever before, but they're being deployed sort of on top of fossil fuels right now. So all energy use is going up and the share of that that's renewables is building on top of fossil fuel. Right. Yeah. Which is not the direction we need to go. We need yeah. to stop everything you stop growing, which is why we desperately need the army of retrofit people to it's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. This is all I need. We only need all we need to do is hire a hundred thousand people to do retrofits everywhere and we'll tip the balance of the scales towards significant decarbonization. This is my twenty twenty four hope. I'm not gonna say it's gonna happen. I don't have much faith in it. <laughs> but you know, if they can do something, it's this. But anyways, this has been it. That's our show. We're running out of time. So thank you so much. This has been Dr. Alex Savasoli with our year-end review of whether or not tech will in fact save us. Our answer, probably not. But there are some cool things that are happening and some cooler things that we could do if we just decided to try. Thank you so much. This has been everyone. So sorry, this has been everyone. This has not been everyone. This has only been us. This is how this works. I'm going to restart that one. Thank you so much for being here, Alex. Thank you. Yes. Thanks for having me. And have a wonderful new year to the Green Majority listeners. You are all why we do this. Have a wonderful 2023 and beginning of 2024. It's not easy being green. It's not easy.